0: Questions you've always
1: wanted to know. everybody welcome back to another episode of ask katie anything i am your host and licensed marriage and family therapist katie morton and today i have an opportunity to bring a wonderful guest onto the podcast his name is jason thompson and he is the director of deep tms and hbot from apn lodge now if you don't know what apn lodge is We want to thank them for sponsoring this podcast. All Points North Lodge is a behavioral health company that offers addiction treatment, mental health, and trauma therapy at a stunning, and it is stunning, Colorado Mountain Campus. And also they offer things online. Now, Jason Thompson brings his passion for healing and educating to his role as director of deep TMS and hyperbaric services at All Points North Lodge. He loves educating and treating clients with newer technologies and guiding them through the healing process with a holistic approach. For school, Jason attended South University in Savannah, Georgia, where he earned a Bachelor's of Science degree in Health Sciences. In addition, he's a certified EM, EMTP and trained in TMS for Brains Way and Neurostar. Since 2004, he's worked in a variety of healthcare settings, such as an EMT and director of neuromodulation in Texas. Most recently, Jason was the TMS Director and Business Development Manager in McKinney. Um, The most rewarding moments of his career so far in observing the outcome of treatment in his clients and being a part of their road to recovery. He always goes the extra mile to ensure the quality is measured amongst each individual. And just a huge thank you to Jason and to All Points North Lodge for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you for making time for us, Jason. Welcome.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: You've been busy. That's a lot of stuff you've been doing.
0: Yeah, yeah very busy. But it's, it's, it's so rewarding. It's, you know, I tell people every day that, you know, there's a ton of burnout in mental health. And when you actually get to see better every day, I mean, it's it's what drives you.
1: I, I agree. So, very that,
0: fortunate. Very lucky.
1: Yeah, that's what keeps makes our job fulfilling and keeps us going, right? It's the people. You get to actually see yeah. change. It's super, super powerful. So you do yeah. a lot of different things um, at APN, and there's so much we can jump into, but I want first if you're okay with this just to jump into deep tms now i've i've actually worked with a lot of psychiatrists who because i used to be in los angeles where now we've relocated to austin texas Um, but i worked with a bunch of psychiatrists in los angeles who had tms in their practice and i've had patients do it but i don't fully understand what it is how it works and how is deep tms different from just tms
0: So TMS itself stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation and it's exactly like it sounds. It's literally magnetic waves brought forth by the power of an MRI magnet uh, penetrating through the scalp into the brain, specifically the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. That's what we're focusing on when we're dealing with depression, anxiety, OCD, certain forms of addiction including smoking cessation currently. Mm -hmm. Um, But literally everything in your body works off an electronic impulse, a synapse, as synapse travels along a neuronal pathway And when your body deems something traumatic, be it chemical, physical, emotional, or any combination of, and that's the variable from person to person, uh, the body has the ability to kind of revert and protect itself Mm -hmm. uh, and divert energy into a different pathway um, because it feels that's what's best. Um, And so what we've done is we've harnessed the power of that magnet to amplify and enhance and optimize the electronic frequency that the brain is already functioning at to recreate that homeostatic balance that it should have. Gotcha. Uh, without the nasty side effects of, of medications that they can
1: have. So it's kind of like, uh, it, in the, but my best explanation is I always tell my patients, like, you're feeling really overwhelmed. You feel like you're getting queued up. It can help to do a full body shake because you're, like, initiating your nervous system to, like, release some energy. And it sounds like TMS is, like, initiating through magnetic stimulation some of the things that your brain would do. Without like prior to the trauma, or prior to right. you know maybe the urge to act out or whatever might happen when our limbic system is firing. Exactly. Um, does it? Because I I do know, and I, again I know like enough to get in trouble, really, <laughs> not enough to to really do the TMS. But I I've heard from many patients that they've had different hats. So when you put the magnets on on your head, you guys, if you're doing TMS, you wear like a helmet. And they said that there's different helmets for different issues. Is that correct? Or you move the magnets? How does that work?
0: Correct. So obviously by utilizing the different helmets, we can focus on different areas of the brain. Currently, we have the ability to treat major depressive disorder with comorbid anxiety, uh, OCD, and now smoking cessation, which was actually FDA cleared uh, about six, seven weeks ago. So that's a super exciting thing.
1: Um,
0: And that's actually going to be one of the first of of many of the uh, addiction uh, indications that we're going to see, I think, here very, very shortly.
1: Yeah, that's wonderful um, news because there hasn't really been. I mean, I know my dad smoked when I was growing up and he tried to quit by taking Wellbutrin, And mm-hmm. I mean, the side, it gave him a seizure, which we, it yeah. was like super scary and he had to go off immediately. Um, yep. or and people, I've heard people having weird dreams, taking, there's another medication I forget for smoking cessation. Um, but yeah, it's like, why are we fighting a chemical with another chemical? This is a, right. is a great alternative
0: biologically and actually get the body to, to stabilize and, and release the neurotransmitters in order to, to create that, that balance again uh, and not have to have the addiction or, or the substance in order to kind of recreate or, or reinvent the wheel, if you will.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. So because I do know, I mean, I'm assuming we're hopeful for opioid addiction stuff to come along oh, absolutely. then?
0: Absolutely. There's a ton of studies, uh, both in Canada, overseas and Australia, on uh, methamphetamine use, on cocaine use, on, of course, opioids um, you know, just to really kind of combat that, that, uh, epidemic that we're dealing with.
1: Yeah, definitely. Cause I mean, it's in Los Angeles in everywhere. It's everywhere. Even yeah, it's back home. Yeah. I'm even, I grew up in a really small town in Washington state and I didn't realize it's funny when you're like a kid, you don't see things the same. And then you come back as an adult and I'm like, what is going on? And my mom's like, Oh, we have a meth problem here. I don't know if you'd realize <laughs> I'm like, yeah, Oh definitely. my God. Yeah. So do they think, and I know this is all like what the research is saying in hypotheses, because it's not actually, are they thinking that the, the, the deep TMS can somehow trigger the reward system in your brain to give you that same feeling? Or is it like it's kind of removing that need? Because there's kind of two ways to go about it. If you think of like heroin and like methadone treatment, if anybody's not aware, a lot of people who are struggling with addiction when it comes to heroin, Take methadone, which is kind of a way of weaning yourself off of the, the heroin by giving you a similar experience through a medication. People have thoughts and, di- you know, differences of opinion about it, but it, what are we kind of hoping with the deep TMS?
0: I really feel like it's going to cut the need out, you know, where you have mat therapy that, that, that it creates that almost reward in, in a delineation or a smaller dosing to, to get the body adjusted to it. I think this is actually recreating that balance that the body should have We don't need the product, you know, be it smoking, be it, you know, whatever it may be. Um, The body has the ability to release the dopamine and the, you know, serotonin to to recreate the the natural balance.
1: Gotcha. So we're not like craving it so much, right? Correct. How interesting. Yeah, I can't wait to hear more about it and learn. Hopefully, you know, there's other things, like you said, it's really it's it's amazing to have these different indications. And hopefully the smoking cessation is just one of many so exactly
0: it really is like the culmination of psychiatry and neurology mixing all together
1: yeah yeah and i mean i have a lot of patients and viewers alike that are very nervous about medication and what side mm-hmm. effects could mean and then it also can take a long time that's been my biggest frustration as a clinician is that once my patients are like okay i'm gonna go see a psychiatrist i'm gonna try something then we're looking three to six weeks sometimes at least and yeah. then it might not even be the right one and so then we're Correct. like starting all over and it could take you know Months and months and months and months and trials and trials. It creates
0: a lot of frustration. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And
1: so this is just another option. So the main, uh, I guess, question I'm sure a lot of people will have is how do you find someone who does TMS? And what's like the Mm -hmm. time commitment? What does the treatment look like if you're putting together like a treatment plan?
0: Gotcha. So you can actually visit many of the manufacturers' websites and they have a find a provider um, close to your zip code, and they, you know, break it down into how close and, of uh, course, ratings and, and what all um, indications that they can treat. Not everyone takes on the full gamut or array of, of indications, mm-hmm. um, but the standard prescription is 36 treatments. The okay. very first one takes us up about an hour, um, and we do what's called cortical mapping, and it's just fancy words of where does the magnet have to go, how strong does it have to be for that person? You know, we understand that the anatomy of the brain is about the same from person to person, but the amount of hair they have, the thickness of the scalp, the density of the skull are all factors. So we want to make sure it's specific for them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then each supplement treatment is only 20 minutes. So it's a very, very uh, small impact to a daily routine.
1: Yeah, that's something um, you could squeeze in on like a lunch break kind of. Oh, you know?
0: absolutely. Before work, after work, lunch break, whatever. We we definitely want to make sure that we're making it convenient for for the individual because 36 treatments, I mean that's it's a commitment. I mean that's 8 yeah. 9 weeks.
1: And yeah, so how many times a week then are they coming in? Is it like because I remember back in the day when it first like Neurostar was brand new, this is probably yep. I don't know, like maybe 8 years ago, 10 years ago when I first started seeing it, people were having to go 5 days a week. I doesn't sound like that's the or is that what they're requiring right. still or what yeah, what's this look like? We're
0: still doing five days a week because we want to train the, the brain on, on how to function optimally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's no different than, than training wheels. You know, the, the more practice you have, the, the more uh, adept the, the, the body gets used to it. So the consistency allows the brain to, to learn how to function again. And then, of course, the weekend breaks, um, you know, kind of forces it to, to recreate that, that uh, stimulation that we've induced Monday through Friday.
1: Oh, interesting. Um, so,
0: yeah, five, five times a week, only 20 minutes. So yeah, that's not bad. Super yeah. and No, do, not at all.
1: Does insurance cover it? Do you know most? I know, obviously, I can't yeah. speak, like, everywhere, but mostly?
0: Yeah, most of your major insurance carriers cover it. You know, your Medicare obviously covers it, Blue Cross, and Cigna. Your, your big insurances all have standardized policies for it, um, and it, it's kind of different depending on, on the actual carrier itself, but most of them want to see two to three medications that you've tried
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, and some, some type of therapy.
1: Yeah, make sure it's a uh, treatment resistant as they call it, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. Gotcha. Yeah. If anybody out there doesn't know what we're talking about, when you when a medication that you've tried hasn't worked for you, if you do that twice or three times, they consider that treatment resistant depression, treatment resistant insert diagnoses. Right. Um, right obviously as a clinician we know that sometimes it's just like those medications didn't work and we're just waiting to find the right one but when it comes to insurance coverage a lot of times they need to see that before they'll approve any alternatives um right. which you know it's just how our system works unfortunately okay so that, that's story. Uh, yeah, i know it's like sometimes you has got to like jump through the hoops make it you know say the things they need you to say in the way that they want you to say them because that's how insurance is um so that's really interesting so how long have you been working with TMS? What got you interested in it? I'm just curious because it's it is still really a new newer thing.
0: It definitely is newer. Um, I've been involved in TMS for a little over ten years, uh, and I've treated somewhere between fifteen and sixteen hundred different individuals wow. um, in an in a array of, of different settings. You know, I've worked in private practice. I've, I'm now here in, in, the, in a treatment center. Uh, I've worked in acute hospitals. Um, but I actually, you know, went through a very wonderful divorce uh, mm-hmm. and, and became a single parent. And as I was looking for work, I actually went to a hospital and they told me I looked like a psych tech as I was walking up to uh, the HR table. I asked if it had insurance. They said yes. And I said, I look like a psych tech. Having no idea what I was getting myself into, it was com- something completely new mm-hmm. um, and absolutely fell in love with with mental health Um Ended up actually being a second shift registrar, ended up being a lead tech, a verbal de-escalation and handle with care instructor. Um, and it just was something that I really, really loved. Um, had some health issues. And as I was recovering, one of the psychiatrists that I worked with um, knew my passion for people, knew my my tenure in mental health, and basically described um, ECT without the negative connotations or mm-hmm. uh, negative side effects. Um, fast forward and here I am.
1: Yeah, wow. It's funny. They're like, you look like a psych tech. <laughs> like they were already, you had that look. <laughs> yes, I don't know. I know, I know. Who knows, right? But wonderful. That's, I mean, mental health care can be so rewarding. It, it's such an amazing opportunity to get to be part of someone's journey, you know? Even like a small part, I always feel is like it's such a privilege. So that that's really great. And that's actually a great segue into. ECT I think a lot of people I even got some questions from my audience about ECT and kind of like the history of it what it's like now because I know it's changed a lot but it's not something that I've uh, that I know that much about because I haven't been part of it I've only had maybe a handful of patients over the years who've done it as kind of a Hail Mary I'm super suicidal the suicidal thoughts won't go away. I don't know what to do. And we've tried everything. Um, can you tell us a little bit about ECT or where it came from and where it's at now?
0: Sure. I mean, ECT, I think has such a a strong negative connotation to it. I think most people think of Jack Nicholson, one flew over the cuckoo's nest Mm -hmm. almost instantly. Uh, but you know, they, they think about that, about TMS too, because the two being, um, a biological combatant, you know, they're, they're very similar. I think the biggest thing is it's no longer an archaic, um, you know, let's just see what happens. I think it's more of a science um, between uh, the the psychiatrist, the nursing staff, uh, the anesthesiologist that's that's aiding the psychiatrist in inducing the seizure, whether they're utilizing unilateral or bilateral treatments and just really basically resetting and and recreating that that calibration of of the brain. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we've all seen a medical show where where they yell clear. And I think the the majority of us kind of think that we're jumpstarting the heart and reality, what we're doing is we're ceasing all electri- electrical activity so that it can restart at its own rhythm. I think that's the thought behind ECT is that if we can stop all electronic function via a seizure, when it restarts, it should restart at its normal rate and rhythm.
1: Yeah, it's almost um, like a control-alt-delete, like a reboot.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so, very much like a, a hard reboot. And I think that's the biggest difference between ECT and, and TMS is that instead of having that hard reboot you know, it's it's more of a soft reboot. It's it's just in the program and start it back up, uh, allowing it to, to function, you know, optimally.
1: Yeah, I like that analogy because I picture like a TMS is almost like when you shut down the apps on your phone. You're like, it's a lot going right. on here. Yeah. Let's just oh, start fresh. it over. <laughs> yeah. Whereas like it. ECT is that, that hard reboot. And yeah. And I do I do want people to know that that it's not it isn't as barbaric as people think. Yeah. Um, it is a very it's a very safe and uh, I don't even know how to describe it really. It's like a medical procedure is kind of how it.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you have a complete nursing staff, the anesthesia that's involved, Uh, you know, it it definitely has its place when, Mm -hmm. when somebody's dealt with depression for that long and they've become, you know, catatonic or, you know, can no longer care for themselves. You know, it definitely has its place.
1: Totally. And I, I agree. It's, It's not like a first line treatment by any stretch of the imagination, but, it can be super beneficial. I've seen it help. Like I said, like my, my severely suicidal patients who nothing seems to touch that it's been one of the things that is that and vagus nerve stimulation, I found to be pretty effective as well, like getting a, an implant. Um, yep. but just to wrap up the ECT before, cause I want to hear your thoughts about that too. But, um, ECT does have some memory loss concerns just for anybody out there who might be considering it short term around the treatment tends to be paid if, if there's any memory at all. Um, and obviously, you know, talk to your doctors, ask questions, make sure you're comfortable with it. Again, it shouldn't be first line treatment, but it does have its place in, in our treatment uh, kind of like, I call them like a treatment tree. It's kind of like, as you work your way down, you know, it's in there too. So do you, Absolutely. I don't know if you have, this wasn't something we talked about ahead of time, but have you ever worked with vagus nerve stimulation at all? Or is that something that you guys yeah, do? Yeah, actually I
0: have so yeah we use a, a product called alpha stem. That's a, that's mm-hmm. a vagus nerve stimulator mm-hmm. clips onto your, your, your ear lobes. And, um, you know, you, the creation or rebalancing of, of the different brain waves that you have actually works pretty well. Uh, you know, I think a lot of individuals see almost instantaneously relief. Um, it's just how long it's going to last for that individual. It's, it's it's another one of those, you know, toys in the bat belts, if you will, mm-hmm. um, that we can utilize in order to create that best treatment tree, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. It's the best outcome for somebody.
1: Yeah. And it is, I don't know if you've had this experience, but, and again, mine's like a handful, I think like five patients because I have one who had the actual implant. But when you talk of Mm -hmm. the alpha stim, it works for people for a while and then it kind of starts to like taper off how effective, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you, if that's like true with the research or true with what you've seen as well.
0: You know, typically it's, it's more of a short-term thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if somebody doesn't qualify for TMS, if they don't qualify for ECT, it gives us another uh, technology that we can use to provide instantaneous relief. I think a lot of individuals that uh, may not approve through insurance that, that are utilizing something like that, maybe the depression isn't as severe, maybe they're concentrating more on insomnia instead of uh, mm-hmm. the depression or the anxiety, um, and, and by relieving those symptoms, they may find that the depression, the anxiety uh, start to reduce as well, so... Like I said, I think it's just another tool that we can utilize um, in, that, in that constant battle against depression, anxiety, and other biological disorders.
1: No, I agree 100%. Have you heard of, just out of curiosity, stellate ganglion block?
0: No, SGB. I haven't.
1: It's, it's a new, and we, I don't have to get into it too much, but I did research about it for, for my book uh, about trauma. My book, Traumatized, came out in September. And in the alternative therapies and treatments, I talked about TMS. I talked about vagus nerve stimulation. And I was watching a Joe Rogan podcast, this is like years ago, from one of our veterans had come back. And his complex PTSD was like out of control. And I think think he even like struggled with addiction for a period of time too. But he had gone just trying all these treatments and he was using the alpha stem. And he was saying how that helps in between. But he gets, so your stellate ganglion is like a a nerve that runs down your neck, kind of in, almost like where your vagus nerve, we know, kind of goes. It, it hits over here by your neck, down by um, kind of your collarbone. And they found that people who had been repeatedly traumatized had a much larger stellate ganglion than those who hadn't. And we've been using some kind of, I forget the exact cocktail, because it's not something like I would do. It's a medical professional. You have to go in for like a procedure just for like an hour but uh, they found that people with trauma had a much larger one. And they've been using for years people who had swallowing issues because I guess your stellate ganglion can affect that as well. And so since the late 20s, they've been giving like this lidocaine and other mixture to kind of reduce that nerve and to numb it a little bit to help people s- regain the, uh, their ability to swallow. And through that, they found that it can also, when the stellate ganglion is smaller... Uh, hypervigilance is down, impulsivity is down, like all of the PTSD symptoms that we can see. And so I've had a member of my community try it out and it was really beneficial for her. And then the guy on Joe Rogan's podcast, said it was like life-changing and he goes in every, I think it, you go in like every six months for a while and then he hasn't gone back. And he does the alpha stem whenever he starts to feel a little agitated anyway just awesome. other alternatives you know yeah. um because he tried everything you know it was one of those like all the medications all the therapies and and i'll be honest like therapy is great but if you're drowning in the symptoms it can't find your way out it, no and i can't i can't get you to be- do behavioral technique like that's not gonna work let's not be stupid here I'm, i don't pretend i have like this magic bullet that could <laughs> make you all of a sudden you know do the thing so um yeah i think anybody out there who's who's really struggling just know there are other options. There always are. Almost. It's like, we just have to ask questions and hopefully this gives people some language so they can ask the right questions. Um, now there was something on that I hadn't heard of before is that HBOT. Can you explain what HBOT is and how that's helpful for patients?
0: Sure. So HBOT is hyperbaric oxygen therapy
1: oh, and it's literally
0: okay. saturating the body in hundred percent medical grade oxygen. You know, at that level oxygen is actually a drug And we're also decreasing the pressure. So we're actually diving people down to 2.2, 2.4 ATAs or true atmospheres. And so it's high pressure, low pressure that oxygen is looking for a place to go. And so instead of just saturating the red blood cells and the hemoglobin, we're actually able to to penetrate and and saturate the plasma. And that's why it's always been used for burn victims, for crush injuries, for things like that is because that plasma or that oozing in a wound is always there. And it has a process called neoangiogenesis or recreating new arterial vessels Um, So that even when somebody's not in treatment, that oxygen is actually able to go there and speed the recovery and the healing. Um, And so we've been able to use it for a lot of different individuals, um, not only for PTSD, but for TBI, for CTE, for post-concussional syndrome. A lot of that is just uh, ischemic areas of the brain where there's not enough oxygen. And if we can, A, saturate it and heal it and then create the process for it to continue to heal itself afterwards, it's it's phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal
1: totally life-changing that's amazing oh absolutely i wonder if they use that for because i mean the tbis and the concussions and stuff i mean i'm a football fan and my husband we watch a lot of hockey also do you know yeah. if they've utilized this at all at that level i would hope so
0: so i know that they, they've definitely done it um post uh, concussive and tbi i think that there's probably a lot of push uh to kind of get it more in the forefront uh kind of like we've done with tms to, to cross the barriers, uh, and, and reduce the amount of medications that people have to try before they qualify. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to be the same type of, of situation. I think you'll see it for in NFL, soccer, uh, rugby, hockey. Uh, I think a lot of those, those contact sports you'll see.
1: Yeah, that's so fascinating. And how does this benefit? So since I know at APN Lodge, you guys do a lot of like addiction treatment, obviously. How does it benefit someone like that or someone with, you know, addiction, trauma, other mental health concerns? Yes.
0: I mean, it's the, the combination of, of all of it. You know, when somebody's coming in here with substance use, they, they, they probably have some sort of trauma or some depression or something that's going alongside it. Um, and that's kind of why they've picked up on the substance use. Um, so, you know, we could pick anything. But the alcohol, you know, it's, it's an inflammatory uh, drug. Um, toxifies the body. Um, and by having that saturation of, of oxygen and being able to recreate, you know, your liver already wants to, to heal itself. You're just speeding that process up. Um, you know, you're, you're reducing the inflammation across the body, across the brain, across the the chest, reducing the pressure on the heart. Um, the sleep that, that you hear from individuals that have done it after even just the first, we call it a dive or treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, they come back the second day and they're like, it's the best sleep I've ever had in my life. So, you know, being able to truly heal the body that quickly, um, with nothing more than oxygen. I mean, it's, it's
1: phenomenal. No, that is phenomenal. And I mean, there's so much we know now about inflammation and how detrimental it can be to our health overall. That's just fascinating to me. How often do people need to do the HBOT and like how long are the treatments?
0: So the treatments are about an hour and a half, two hours. Uh, It takes us a good 12 to 15 minutes to get somebody down to pressure. Obviously, that first time we're going to take it a little bit slower just because we want to make sure that the body's acclimating very well. Mm -hmm. They stay at pressure 60 to 90 minutes and another 12 to 15 minutes to bring them back up to pressure. Um, oh, so they've got crazy. a solid, you know, 60 to 90 minutes, depending on what they're treating for, um, at pressure, just, you know, being able to have the benefits of that hundred percent pure oxygen. Yeah. Um, and once again, that's, that's, that's a, a medical procedure. You know, there's a, there's a full team of, of medical providers, a physician, um, specially trained technician that never leaves the side of the chamber. Um, and it's an actual, you know, fantastic, um, tool once again.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's really, that's really crazy. Are there any potential side effects? From
0: it? So there's a there's a couple, you know, mm-hmm. obviously decreasing and increasing the pressure in somebody's uh, tympanic, membra- tympanic membrane tympanic mm-hmm. membrane uh, can cause some some barotrauma. Um, there is something called oxygen toxicity where you know the body's just not used to that that pure oxygen. Uh, but you know we we go through all these precautions. Everyone has a chest X ray prior to uh, actually receiving hyperbaric treatments, uh, just to kind of rule out pneumothorax. Um, like I said, we, we have a physician on site. We have the, the specially trained technicians, um, so we want to remove you know, 99.9% of, of any possible side effects. Um, most people, if, if they're going to have any issues, um, are going to have just a little bit of, um, you know, almost like a pressure uh, sensation in their ears, kind of like when you take off or land in an airplane. Oh, yeah. Um, but because we're doing it consistently, we, we, we monitor the ears, we, we, we rate the, the tympanic membranes on what's called a TEED scale um, and take all the precautions.
1: So crazy. That's wild. So you get into, like, an actual chamber. Do you feel like you're, like, yeah. going to become Wolverine? <laughs> You know how they like put them. On. I'm just
0: kidding. No, it's, it's it's not the old steel lung. I, I, I don't even think they use those anymore. And it's the, the things that actually see through. Um, individuals that are actually in the chamber can watch Netflix or you know okay. whatever it may be. Um, we're working on technology so that you know some of our players can review films with their coaches and they can still be productive. Uh, but I think a lot of individuals that are here on site here at APN are using it as as almost a, a quiet process time. You know they're uh-huh. kind of being inundated with individual therapy, with group therapy, with you know whatever they're being involved in so it's a, a, a really positive time for them to just kind of rest relax and reflect and, and process everything that they've been going through
1: yeah i can imagine especially in treatment because i used to work at a eating disorder treatment facility for many years and there is so much going on it, it is kind of nice to have that quiet time to just kind of oh yeah yeah process all the stuff that's going on maybe all this come up for you it, it might be a nice reset especially that amount of time is nice because we don't usually you know give ourselves that time right uh, now, the last thing I want to talk with you about a little bit is the um, the other adjunctive therapies, the, the NADA or NADA. I'm not sure how you say it, N-A-D-A.
0: Yeah, NADA, it's an auricular detox acupuncture. Okay. It's actually uh, five very small needles um, that are placed into the ear and in five different places um, to alleviate, reduce, and shorten uh, the duration of, of what detox looks like for those that are uh, going through substance use disorders.
1: Okay, so is it, because um, I've done acupuncture before, do they stimulate? I know, because for me, so I had an injury in my uh, back and like on my back kind of by my shoulder blade. And some of them, they would leave and then others, they would hook up to little electrical pulses. Do they do that as well yep. when it comes to this? And-
0: so, no electrical pulses. There's no extra need for stimulation. The, okay. the, the points that we are are, are locating and, and stimulating are, are actually just, like I said, small quarter-inch needles. Um, and most individuals um, are, are sitting with the needles for about 30 to 40 minutes. I prefer doing it in a group setting because the, the relaxation that you get and, and camaraderie that you get uh, from individuals doing it together is, is phenomenal. Um, oh, interesting. You know, when I first trained on this, uh, it was really cool to hear the stories of, of post 9-11 and, you know, all the the, the firemen and, and first responders actually doing this together. Um, mm-hmm. you know, at Ground Zero was, was phenomenal and, and the, the effects that they had from it.
1: That's really cool. I mean, I do know from, I mean, research and also a clinical standpoint, how important connection is, how healing that can be. So it's interesting to like combine one of the alternative therapies and acupuncture with that connection. I could see that it's like layering on the benefits, you know, to oh, people absolutely. who are struggling. And yeah, is, is this something that has to be repeatedly done? I know when I went and got my acupuncture, I think I went in for like six treatments or something. Is it around that or...
0: So we really like to do it three or four times a week. Okay. Um, I think a, a lot of individuals that, that even have fears with needles understand that, hey, it's really not that bad, but we have alternatives. We have magnets and we have seeds that we can place in those same five spots if needles are just an absolute no. Um, so we can utilize the therapy, you know, for anybody. Uh, but like you asked, yeah, about three, four times a week would be beneficial.
1: Okay. Okay. That's good. Yeah. And that's not too time consuming either for someone. Because even all. for me, I think I used to do it at the end of my workday or my lunch break. And I can mm-hmm. squeeze it in, so so that's good to know. Yeah. Okay. We have a couple of questions from our audience before we wrap. And if there's something you can't answer, because I know you don't do the clinical side of things, you're you're the, the tech guy. You do all of the <laughs> make sure everything runs appropriately. The psych tech, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, That's me. But someone asked, they said, hey, Katie and guest, my therapist recommended that I try a brainwave treatment for my depression and anxiety. She said, in most cases, it can really help. I would love to hear more about it in the pros and cons. Thank you. So when someone talks about brainwave treatment, what is, is that a different thing that we haven't talked about? Or what does that mean?
0: No, actually, we have touched on it. Brainsway is the only manufacturer for DTMS or deep transcranial magnetic okay. stimulation. They're also the only one that that have the multiple indications across the board, and it's a technology that I've actually utilized for probably the past four and a half, five years. Um, Because it is deep and what separates it from other TMS is it actually allows us to penetrate another six to eight centimeters into the brain, Mm -hmm. incorporating more neurons, getting to the limbic system quicker, uh, and actually seeing results faster as well.
1: Wonderful. Are there any cons to it? Because she's asking, like, obviously we've talked a ton about pros. I haven't heard personally of any cons
0: mild scalp discomfort, maybe a little bit of a headache. Um, if somebody has a headache, it's, it should probably only last 20 to 30 minutes. And whatever you take over the calendar, be it Tylenol, Advil, Motrin should probably knock it out. Okay. For individuals that I deal with that, that have that, that mild scalp discomfort or headache, I tell them to go ahead and take that Tylenol, Advil, Motrin, You know, before the next three to five treatments so that we can kind of prevent it before it even happens. Most individuals are gonna adapt to the treatment in the first three to five treatments anyway. And it's really not that big of a deal.
1: OK, yeah, because I hadn't heard, I mean, even my patients who tried it, nobody had any issues other than the fact that it is a little uncomfortable. You know, they're like, yeah, it feels like first, someone's kind of like tapping on your, your head a little bit. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I tell people it's like going on a date with Woody Woodpecker. It's, it's definitely not the most horrible date. You'll make it. You'll, you'll go through it. Um, but your, your body acclimates so quick. It's no different than, than the nerve endings, picking up a hair pull or wearing a ball cap for a long, long period of time. It gets that tired, itchy sensation. So it being a new sensation, your body you know adapts to it very, very quickly.
1: Yeah, it is true. Other I mean, even, that, hmm, go ahead. Sorry.
0: Other than that, you know, uh, increased focus, clarity, uh, energy, pep in your step. Uh, if, if those are. Negative for you, then maybe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, it sounds it sounds wonderful. I've always wanted to try it myself, just so I knew what it was like. Um, yeah, because I hadn't heard of any real cons to trying it. Right. Okay, now um, someone is asking, they're saying, and we might have already kind of touched on this, but I want people to know that we answered their question. They said, um, hey, can you guys talk more about TMS as a whole? Is it meant to complement traditional talk therapy or can it be done on its own? Where I live, there's only one private clinic that provides this treatment option, so it feels risky since it's not used by many. And I'm not sure if the price is justified. When should I consider this alternative? I struggle with trauma and dissociation. Thank you so much. So is it something that's done in conjunction with talk therapy or I've always done it that way personally, but.
0: I think that's the best thing that, that, that can be done. You know, I tell people who come in for TMS treatment, there's no doubt in my mind that I can get you better. However, if you go back to the same situation, you have the same triggers, you're utilizing coping skills that don't work for you. Eventually, four months, four years, whatever, that depression, that anxiety, that trauma is going to creep back up on you. So understanding what those triggers are, how to identify them, using coping skills that, that You know are operationally functional for you are going to be key um absolutely i think one of the the biggest things that we've done here at apm is is created more of an experience than just a treatment we actually wrote a a book you know there's 36 treatments and there's 36 lessons that kind of coincide with each treatment you know understanding what your triggers are what depression what anxiety what your trauma looks like for you you know how to identify it and how to progress through it you know we cover sleep we cover exercise You know, we know motion creates emotion. So we want to make sure that we're covering everything so that they're getting the best experience and the the best overall outcome possible.
1: Yeah. You sound like a therapist. Are you sure you're not a therapist? (laughs) (laughs) I know. You've been working in the field a lot. I can tell, like, I I appreciate all the coping skills and understanding where things are coming from and what what our triggers are. Because that's that's really key, because I have to agree, like, if we keep going back into the same situation, you know, we're going to get the same experience it's not like we're going to be immune even if we can find a way to resolve what we're going through now if we continue to do the same things we're going to get that same result again and have to go back into treatment you know and it's like getting ourselves out of those unhealthy patterns is going to be really key to our healing and you said something interesting interesting i really liked about the like movement and, and emotion someone asked and i don't know Obviously, like, again, I know you're, you're, you don't do the clinical work, but someone in the comments when I was getting questions for this asked about how they were sharing a story of how they were in yoga and they were doing a certain pose and they just broke down crying. And they were asking if that's normal. Are you able to speak to that at all?
0: I mean, I can't speak 100 percent, but I think that, that there's a definitely a, a connection between mind and body. And I think that there are certain exercises, movements uh, techniques that you can utilize, you know, be it a, a breathing technique, you know, box breathing or whatnot, um, yoga, Pilates, stretching, um, calisthenics. I think a lot of those, you know, help help the body break things up and, and release uh, endorphins and obviously make you feel better. And, you know, I've always just used the same phrase that I use motion create, or excuse me, motion creates emotion mm-hmm. when you're stagnant, when you're sedentary, um, you have a tendency to to, to kind of get lost in your head and, and delve into those those feelings and uh, and thoughts. Yeah. Um, whereas when you're being active, you're you're getting your heart rate up, you're moving oxygen, um, you know, you tend to, to have a little bit more focus, more, more motivation, more energy.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I have to agree with that, too. It, there's something even personally, like if I'm kind of I don't know where I want to go with something or I don't know how to answer. I'm having a tough time. You know, life is mm-hmm. difficult at times. And maybe I'm not really sure what my next move is or what's best for me. Doing some yoga, doing other kinds of movement or workout, even just going for a walk can kind of. Yeah shake things loose and get me out of, out of the thought ruts. <laughs> Cause we get in like yeah. these thought cycles that aren't helpful. And then I can come back sometimes or sometimes even in the middle of doing yoga, I'll be like, Oh, like I'll have like an epiphany. I'm like, Oh my God, that would be so much better if I stood this way. And then I'm able to like, I don't know. It's like, it shakes something loose in your, <laughs> in your breaks head. breaks up the, the mental
0: cobwebs and gives you that aha moment.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it can be really incredibly healing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Is there anything you feel like we left out or any other things you want to talk about? there? You have such amazing options over there.
0: No, I, I just really want people to understand that there's always options. Um, you know, don't, don't take things at first glance. Don't judge the book by its cover. Um, there's definitely treatment options out there. Um, so speak to your providers, speak to your, you know, clinical professionals and, and, and find those options.
1: Yeah, I agree, because sometimes we can feel like, oh, we've tried everything, but maybe we haven't. There's there's a lot more alternatives. Hopefully we opened your eyes to just a couple of the other options maybe you didn't know were available to you, because, you know, it can and will get better. For sure. Thank you, Jason. Have a wonderful rest of your day, and thanks for taking the time to speak with us.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much.
1: Of course. Bye. Now, as Jason said, he doesn't do the clinical side of things. He is the psych tech. He does all the technology stuff. We have four questions left that are more up my alley, more of the clinical side. Now, the first question says, Katie, I'm very interested in understanding more about the benefits of trauma yoga. I've also heard that singing can have similar benefits. Good. Yeah, this is so I'm excited to talk about this. Why is this? I have complex PTSD and I'll do anything to improve my situation, which is very, very, very bad at the moment. Could you discuss this more? And there are, I want to say two, yeah, two comments it looks like below this. But the benefits of trauma yoga. So kind of back to what Jason was saying and how when we aren't in motion, when we're just sitting, we can get caught in our thoughts because it's the only thing that's moving. And I know that that sounds kind of silly, but so often... All of the energy that our limbic system, which if you guys didn't know what we've been talking about when we are talking about our limbic system, your limbic system is what houses your amygdala. And it's part of our fight, flight response, right? So that fight, flight, freeze, fawn all happens through our limbic system. Now, when something scary or traumatizing or overwhelming happens to us or we feel threatened in some way, that limbic system fires. And it cues us up to take action. Even if we end up freezing, Our body's trying to assess and it's getting all the, it's like all systems go, boop, 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 getting us all reared up so that we can take some action to keep us safe. Now, if we're constantly not in action, we are sedentary, we're staying in bed all day, we're sitting watching TV all day, we're at a computer all day, and we don't take any opportunity to get up and like walk around the block, all of that energy is queued up And it's believed through, if you guys don't know Dr. Peter Levine, who created Somatic Experiencing. It's a type of therapy that brings healing through movement. Now, it's believed that it's in that stagnation and us feeling stuck that trauma is born. So if something threatening or scary happens to us and we can't take any action, it cues up. And that's where PTSD comes from. And so the benefits of trauma-informed yoga is you have someone who not only understands trauma and understands what it can feel like and some of the symptoms that can come from PTSD and, and being traumatized, but they can also offer movements to help kind of free that up. Now, this can be anything from heart openers, which are things in yoga where your arms are back and your chest is kind of open again, like opening your heart. This can also be uh, you know, different back bends, twists, hip openers. There's a lot of different places where we tend to kind of house our unprocessed emotions, like minds like neck and shoulders and hips. They tend to get really tight when I'm stressed out. And I know it can sound really silly. You're like, how is this going to be helpful? Like, sure, everybody's body gets tense when they're stressed. Everybody carries the stress in their shoulders. No, people are different. People carry it in their low back, people carry stress and upset in different places. I've even had patients who it's like all in their gut. They'll like, if they're stressed, they feel really nauseous or they have diarrhea or there's some kind of digestive issue. Everybody's going to be different. And so doing these kinds of movements, that's where twists would come into play. If you don't know yoga too well, twists help with like digestive issues. And so focusing on some event that's upsetting you or a symptom that you don't like while doing movement can help free that up. Because what we're really doing is we're triggering that that thought or that feeling or whatever happened to us while giving our body an action that it can take so that, again, it doesn't get cued up without any movement being made possible. Does that make sense? So we don't want to be in that freeze state anymore. And if we were in freeze, and that's why we're str- struggling with PTSD, we're wanting to unfreeze ourselves. And sometimes we have to be really mindful and act like actually cue the activity with therapy in mind in order to like shake that out. I hope that makes sense. It's like we're consciously making an effort to bring movement where we weren't able to maybe in that traumatizing moment, okay? And it could definitely improve your situation. You might be surprised how much comes up for you. Don't be scared if you cry during yoga or whatever you know type of movement you're trying to do. I know you're saying trauma yoga, but a lot of times it can, when we're in those types of places, trying to move in ways to free up some of that trauma response, it can feel... Emotionally overwhelming. It's okay. It's normal. Allow yourself to do it. You won't be alone. Back in, uh, when I worked at Eden Disorder Treatment Center, in inpatient, when I was in grad school still, a lot of girls would cry. I actually would go and do the trauma informed yoga. Um, it used to be called, I don't know if she does it anymore, but her site used to be called Red Tent Rising. And it was all about like uh, trauma informed yoga and bringing movement and, uh, you know, bringing healing through movement. And she would let me come into the classes with the other patients and do these things, and it was it was really cool to see. It was really cool to see it uh, shake things loose for people and allow them to finally cry because a lot of my patients wouldn't be able to cry in session but would in yoga, and I found that so interesting. And so yes, it could be really beneficial. I would encourage you if you have access to it to give it a try. Now there was a comment on this that says, "I'm thinking of mar. Um, I'm thinking if martial arts, for example, Taekwondo, would help." I have PTSD accompanied by depression and anxiety. My body seems to not respond to my command as it's in a constant freeze state. When I tried out some moves, I threw up and didn't feel safe and comfortable. Should I just give up and try um, other activities such as music and singing instead? Oh, and I did miss the singing. We'll talk about that too. But... Um, I, I think any movement can help. And Taekwondo could definitely be beneficial, especially when we a when, uh, fight maybe wasn't something that we're able to do. You're actually giving your body an opportunity to do that fight that it wasn't able to do in the moment. And that's why we were traumatized right through the freeze state. And since you said you're in a constant state of freeze, I think that it could definitely be beneficial. And even though you threw up and felt not comfortable and not safe, my only concern, I guess, is that you don't really have like a therapeutic person there for you. If you're able to bring a friend or a supportive person, if you have like a support worker, that could be really great. Um, that's why trauma yoga is really good because the, the yoga instructor is trauma informed. If not a clinician like myself, um, for a while, I thought I wanted to get into that, but it's, it's just such a niche and it was a lot of time and money, but, um, Anyways, I think that it could definitely be another resource and a way to get yourself out of that free state. And I think that even that really visceral response you had is is an indication that this is something that your body needs. So I think that that could be definitely, definitely helpful. Now, singing is something that can help. And the reason singing helps, if you guys don't remember when I did that video about vagus nerve stimulation, our throat and that it's like, it stimulates our vagus nerve runs down both sides of our throat. I don't know if you guys remember this. It's the longest nerve in your body. I think it's the 10th cranial nerve, if I remember correctly. But anyways, singing stimulates it and it can improve our mood. And also I think singing can be really cathartic. Sometimes it's a way to like get it out. But I do believe that singing is good, but we still need movement in our bodies. We need to actually get our bodies in motion because it's breaking out of that freeze state that will be the most healing, the most beneficial, Okay. And now someone else said, I just started doing YouTube yoga for extra exercise and stretching. Yay. And the other day I started yoga and I got really frustrated holding a position and then burst out crying like full on snot and tears. Is this normal? Could it be from holding trauma in? Yes. If this is normal, how often do these emotional reactions occur when someone does yoga, especially when traumatized. I had a therapy session a day or two before and I was telling my therapist about another assault that I remembered, but my affect didn't match the story. She started almost trying to provoke any emotion out of me and getting a little exasperated saying, you were raped. That was another rape. And I was like, yeah, it was no emotion. Is this normal? She seems to be getting upset that I have absolutely no emotion when it comes to the people who assaulted me. I know if I saw them, it would be different, but my therapist seems to think that I should be angry at them. I mean, yeah, what they did is horrible and I hate what they did, but I don't feel anything toward them as people. Is this normal? Could the yoga crying have been a delayed reaction to the therapy session or just unlocked my emotions from that session? Thank you so much for everything you do, Katie. Of course, of course. Now, great question. My guess would be that doing that yoga released um, some of the emotions that you have stuffed down or hidden away from yourself in regards to the trauma. I think it it was a release for your body in a way to get you out of that free state. And I think by doing that yoga, you you gave yourself that release. Now, I would be curious, did it feel good afterward? It might have been stressful and overwhelming in the moment, but did you feel relief afterwards? Because that would tell me that it's it's beneficial for you, that it's really helpful for you and it is a way to kind of get it out. And the fact that you weren't able to do it in therapy, I think it's just giving your body another opportunity to release that. Now, I don't think it's a delayed reaction to therapy, but I mean, it could be, meaning therapy could have like opened up the box of our emotions and we're like, no, 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 I can't. And then yoga like dumped them out you know and it's kind of like this process and so i would keep doing it because everybody's going to be different with the like how often this is going to happen in my experience with my patients it happens when they're pro- trying to process something difficult in therapy, it will start happening with more frequency. And then when things start to calm down emotionally for them, it will happen less and less. So it's kind of in tandem with how you, you are doing as a person, how emotional you're feeling. So be patient with yourself. And if you can do this in the safety of your home, it sounds like you're doing it on YouTube at home. That's wonderful. So it's a safe place to feel like you can allow yourself to fall apart if you need to can be incredibly beneficial, incredibly healing. And kind of, it's like we're we're opening up another way for you to get the release and the relief that you maybe haven't been able to get before. And I think that's why it's so powerful to have multiple things going on, not just talk therapy, not just medication or not just TMS or something, but also this kind of what we'd call like body work or movement, healing through movement, because it could be that one component that helps unlock like the Pandora's box inside of us that's like where we've been hiding away all of our emotions, all of our reactions and all of our trauma. So stick with it. I think it's it's really, really great. It's gonna be super beneficial for you. And yeah, keep us posted, okay? Now those other two questions, we went through the brainwave treatment and the TMS. And so we're gonna move on to what in my notes is question number four. And it says, hi, Katie, how do you know if you still need therapy or if you're just overly attached to your therapist. I know you've talked about this before, but I'm still confused. I love my therapist and we've done amazing work together. At this point, it's hard for me to picture my life without her presence, even though I think I will probably have enough tools and coping skills to not need therapy. But what happens when life inevitably has its challenges? I honestly just love uh, talking about my life with her. And as weird as it may sound, I can't imagine losing that bond. I know therapy is supposed to have a formal end but it never seems like the right time. I brought up my attachment with her before and we've talked about it a little but it's never really helped. If anything I think thinking about it strengthened our therapeutic relationship and made me feel more attached. My therapist is such a consistent part of my life and the thought of therapy ending and not having her around makes me sad. Thanks for being you Katie you've made such an incredible impact on me growing up. Oh I'm so glad I could be there for you. Now this is a great question and the truth is, yes, therapy is supposed to come to an end, but that doesn't mean it ends forever. It means that therapy, like for me, it kind of ebbs and flows. Like you can be in therapy and then you can take a break and then you can come back. Cause like you said, when life throw, like gives you lemons, right? When things are happening, when there's stressful events that are going on, we're gonna need that support and it's okay to call on it. It's okay to reach out and go back to therapy. We just don't need it as consistently because day to day, we're doing pretty good. Now, a lot of people enjoy therapy and like going every week just because they like the outlet. They like to vent. I have lots of friends that are in that place as well. And while I believe that therapy should have some kind of an end in sight, if you need that outlet and it comes from a healthy place, that's fine. Now, to answer your question about the overly attached, overly attached is when, we wish we could reach out to our therapist in, bes- in between sessions we think about them all the time we can't imagine making decisions without them we find ourselves being like dependent up on them it's totally normal to enjoy our sessions to want to keep seeing our therapist and to you know to need that outlet that honestly to me tells me that you need therapy still and it's still part of your life and still something that you're benefiting from so we wouldn't want to stop it yet However, if we find ourselves not being able to go that whole week without reaching out or we start to talk or think about our therapist as like our best friend or our mother, that's when the attachment component is involved and when we have to be a little bit cautious. Now, in order to really figure this out for you, because everybody's situation is gonna be different and that might be why you're still confused because I can talk all the time about how attachment plays a role and what's healthy and unhealthy, but until you talk about it, with your therapist. And the way that I would bring this up is how you are concerned about whether you need therapy or you're attached to her and talk about what that brings up for you. What's your experience with this? What do you think? What do you feel about it? Because it's in that, and we can even do this on our own if you prefer to kind of do this detective work on your own time. You can do it before you talk to your therapist because it is helpful to kind of dig into it and just be curious. like. Am I overly attached? Do I feel like I have to see her all the time? Do I want to call her all the time? Or is it just that I, I really need that time and that venting and that hour it just feels good to me? Is it benefiting me and am I feeling better because I've been seeing my therapist? Like think about these things and think about like, you know, um, have I never, have I ever had a relationship like this before? Usually the answer is no. Have I ever had anybody in my life that I could trust with this kind of information I could feel safe enough opening up to? What is that like for me to have this person now that I can? And what I would encourage you then later down the line is to try to create or cultivate a relationship outside of therapy where you feel safe to be you and okay to be you and okay to talk about real things. Because sometimes we don't have anybody else in our life that we can do that kind of deep dive or real conversation with. Our therapist is the only one. And it's always my goal as a therapist to have my patients, to get them to a place where they have another person, not just me, that they can talk about this stuff with. Because I want you to have multiple areas, multiple places where you can feel heard and understood and so that you have a support and a resource other times in our session. And I'm trying to, let me make sure I answered all the questions here. Um, I think having your therapist be a consistent part of your life isn't a terrible thing. Again, it's going back to how, what your attachment looks like. Is it you just enjoy this time and it's really helpful? Or is it my therapist is my best friend or I see them as my mom or, you know, um, I can't go a whole week without reaching out to them and trying to get a hold of them or I wanna talk to them all day, every day. Like wanting to see them during your session and enjoying that time and wanting to have them in your life outside of therapy all the time, all day, every day. Can't imagine them leaving you like crumble into a million pieces. like. Those are two different things. That's like unhealthy attachment and healthy normal therapeutic stuff. And so just, you know, only you really have that answer. So just consider it. And also know that therapy doesn't always have to have like an abrupt and final end. It can just end for now and we can always go back. There's nothing wrong with taking a break from therapy and then going back and getting into it. That That's just part of the process. I've been doing that for most of my adult life. Um, until my first therapist, Rebecca, retired, I would go and see her. And then Jana, I've come back and seen her three or four times. Um, And now that I'm in Texas, like finding a new therapist, I'm sure I'll do the exact same thing. Go for a couple of months, take a break, go back. It doesn't have to be a final end, but it's just getting to a point where you don't need to go all the time and you don't have to see them. That's really what I'm talking about when I talk about therapy ending. Does that make sense? I hope that that clears it up just a little bit. Let me get a drink of water and let's move on to question number five. This question says, how do I get over the fear of opening up to my therapist about things I'm not sure are actually traumatic? I feel like I've built up this anticipation to my therapist about things I'm not ready to talk about yet. And the longer the wait, the more anxious I get. I had lots of ser- sexual experiences as a child, which already makes me feel shameful, but I'm afraid she will hear it and think, well, that's normal, or that situation doesn't warrant this reaction, etc. Thank you, Katie. Okay, what's happening here? Super common. Because of the shame, we tend to tell ourselves this sto- these, these types of stories about our trauma. Stories like, I'm overreacting. I caused it. I'm the one who made this into a bad thing and I should be blamed, right? Or I'm just too sensitive and this actually wasn't even a big deal at all. We tell ourselves these lies and these false stories because A, those are the only things we've been told from other people in our lives when we were growing up. B, we've never had anybody really listen to us and when we were going through this, we used the only things that we can fully understand and comprehend, which is ourselves. And so we created this false story Saying that we were the ones that asked for it and we're the ones that caused it. And we have no, you know, otherwise we don't know why would someone we care about hurt us? They wouldn't, right? So I must be wrong. We tried to make sense of a situation that you can't make sense out of. Um, And so we do those things as a way to cope and deal with trauma when we have no support as a child. We're trying to make sense of the nonsensical. And so we come up with these kinds of invalidating, shame-filled thoughts, beliefs, and stories. Does that make sense? And so therefore, when it comes to therapy and starting to open up with someone who were like, oh, I think something's wrong with this, but I don't know how to talk about it. And what if they don't think it's a big deal? <sighs> I'm here to tell you, take a breath, check your facts, consider something that usually works for many of my patients is consider if it was your best friend who was telling you this happened to them, or maybe imagine I was telling you this happened to me. What would your reaction be? What do you think? Do you actually think it's, it's normal for a child to have sexual experiences? Do we? Let's be honest about that. Because I mean, I can spend hours telling you based on this little, the little that you've told me that you were traumatized and that's, that you're not overreacting, that that's a horrible thing that happened and I'm so sorry, but you're not going to believe me because you have that false story running in your head. And it's that false story that's trying to tell you that your therapist is going to say, oh, it's not that big of a deal or, oh, this is, that's totally normal. And in order to get over that fear, we have to check our facts. We have to consider it from another perspective, right? What would you say if it was me telling you or your best friend or something like that? And then we just have to notice when those thoughts are coming up and then use those other facts or those other perceptions against it to kind of argue back. Because it's in that shame, we're just caught in the shame spiral. And if we stay in it, we'll never get the help that we need. And we'll never be able to tell somebody like our therapist who could help us, we'll never be able to tell them about what happened. And I'm here to tell you that therapists don't judge. They're not going to say, well that's normal or this doesn't warrant that. That would be completely invalidating. that means you're seeing a really shitty therapist and they probably shouldn't have that job at all. Um, and hopefully that's, you're seeing a good therapist. It sounds like you want to tell them, so I'd assume they're trustworthy and doing their job. Um, and so I really think that you know, ch- challenging those thoughts with the facts, giving yourself, giving your therapist an opportunity to support you. And also little by little, as we kind of expose ourselves to this, you'll see that your therapist doesn't react that way. So it's like we're proving over and over again that it is actually a big deal, that it's not common, and that you have every right to feel the way you feel. But we have to challenge those thoughts, expose ourselves a little bit, and it will slowly fade. And I know it sucks to like, oh, it'll slowly fade. Ugh, I want it just to go away. It didn't. wasn't created overnight, so won't be able to fix it overnight, unfortunately. Now, there was a comment on this and said a twist on this question My therapist knows everything already. I've either written it, emailed it, or it was in my intake papers, but I can't talk about it verbally because they're so embarrassing. I can't talk about the topic of sexuality at all, actually. Even typing it out here feels icky. And I agree, saying I'm not ready to talk about it only makes it scarier each day. Would we be able to, instead of trying to talk about the thing, could we talk about Like what makes it embarrassing? Like what are the beliefs you have around what's taken place in your life that is so embarrassing? What, and typing it out here feels icky. I I don't know if you'd be able to do this because it might still feel this way, but I would be very interested if you could journal about sexuality and your beliefs around it and what you've been told about sexual acts. And instead of making it about you and those particular experiences, I'm more curious about sex and you feeling embarrassed or sex and it feeling icky. And what are the messages that maybe you've received over time? Like I think a lot of people who have religious trauma have a lot of that like sex is icky and dirty. I actually had a girl I went to high school with who you know, was was very religious. And when she got married, even struggled to have sex with her husband because it felt so wrong because she'd been so brainwashed into thinking that sex is a bad thing and that it's so icky and dirty that she couldn't enjoy it. It was painful, it was horrible and it ended up ruining their marriage. And so I think being curious about this and what messages you've received and what you agree with and, and just digging into it. What about it is embarrassing? You know, um, what are your thoughts about sex? What are the stories you've been told about sex? hopefully that will give us a little bit more information because writing it, emailing it, and writing an intake papers is different than saying it out loud. And I'm going to get you to a place where you can say, you can talk about sex, you can talk about your sex life, maybe at some point with some trusted friends and your therapist, but we can talk about our abuse and maybe things we've sustained without you know wanting to cover in a blanket or go away and hide altogether. Um, but it'll take time and we have to kind of dig into what messages we're, telling ourselves and what messages we've received so that then we can work to change them. But we can't change what we don't know. And I would bring that after doing the journaling, I might even bring that up in therapy that like, this stuff feels really embarrassing and icky and I wanna dive into why I have that kind of belief about sex and sexuality. Maybe you'd be able to do that, fingers crossed. You got this, okay? Now our final question, question number six says, hey Katie and guest, when do I know if something that happened really was quote unquote, a trauma. When I grew up, I was and still am around this guy who trains horses and he is a lot older than me. I was 14 at the time and he was 60. He was a real father figure for me and I like him a lot but he did forbidden things to me for years. But I told my therapist about that and he said that it doesn't seem like I got any psychological damage from it and that it wasn't that bad. This is a shitty therapist. And so I felt invalidated. Of course you did, what a shitty thing to say. Now I'm wondering if my problems with intimacy and my attachment issues, I'm avoidant, could stem from this, even though at the time these things happened, I didn't really find them, quote unquote, bad at all. I thought it was normal and I just let it happen. Today, I cannot let myself go into a relationship and I abandon the person every time. It could get serious and more emotionally intimate. I feel like I can't love anyone but I still feel really lonely, which also feeds my depression and self-harm urges. So how do you determine if something is traumatic and how can people get over their fear of intimacy and trust with alternative methods? Thank you two so much in advance. I hope you have a great day. And sorry for my bad English. Greetings from Germany. Your English is impeccable. I speak no German, so you're doing a wonderful job. Okay, so first of all, your therapist sucks. To tell someone that uh, wasn't that bad and that you didn't have any psychological, like what are they reading your mind? Do they know you didn't have any psychological damage? I think what it sounds like to me is it sounds like this could have been a trauma bond because you said that this person who was 60 years old when you were 14 was a father figure. And so if you don't know what trauma bonds are, I have an entire video about them, but it's really when we attach to a person who is like a caregiver or father figure to us, or whoever our abuser is, and in general it could be anybody, but we'll attach to them in hopes that if we you know, show them that love, like we're wanting this to be a father figure, so we're like, I'm acting like a child, and I'm hoping if I do this just right, you won't do this harmful stuff to me anymore. And we might not even realize, it can be an unconscious thing that we do where we're like, hey, if I just do this, that, and the other just right, then that abuse won't happen anymore because I don't want that to happen anymore. But I really want this relationship to continue. And the trauma bonds can be so strong that we can seek this person out even when the abuse is still happening. We can want the relationship with them. We can fall in love with them. We can still love them like a mother, father, sister, brother. And it can be really, it's it can be really difficult. It's almost like another form of, um like gaslighting in a way when we're trying to heal because we can we can be like, but I remember it this way, but I also remember it this way and it can be really difficult for us to kind of tease it out. I just want you to know it's very normal. A lot of times it's done as like a self-preservation tactic and it sounds like that might've been what happened here. Um, and the fact that you struggle with intimacy and have attachment issues, I believe could have stemmed from this. I'd need to know more about the nature of this and for how, you know, like how long this was happening and what the what what took place, but it could definitely be from that. I don't know if you're able to switch therapists, but I probably would because it sounds like they're pretty shitty. They shouldn't be invalidating. They should support and acknowledge, and you know work with you to to heal. Um, yeah, and the way that we determine if something's traumatic is if we in any way feared for our life or our safety. And if we have any PTSD symptoms as a result, Um, the basics of being traumatized means that we felt threatened, right? And it could obviously in this situation is happening to you, but also we can watch somebody that we care about be in a harmful or threatening situation and be traumatized through them as well. So just know that it doesn't even actually have to happen to us directly for us to be traumatized. But I mean, if he was doing things to you, you were 14, he was 60, I would say that that was a trauma. But again, you know, you have to consider for you and determine whether or not you were, you felt threatened, like your safety, emotionally or physical, right? It's not just physical safety, it's emotional safety too. Um, And if you experience those things, I believe it could be traumatic, could have been a trauma. And um, how, the last question, how can people get over your fear of intimacy and trust? I really think uh, trauma-based treatment, like therapy, somatic experience, like talk therapy, Somatic experiencing, even like what Jason was talking about, there's there are things like the TMS and things that could be beneficial as well. Um, all of those could be wonderful, wonderful resources and ways for you to heal and move forward. Now there's a comment on this and it says, "This sounds really interesting. Why is it that we sometimes still like our abusers? Something happened to me when I was young, but I'm still friends with the person who did it. I know this sounds so stupid, but I only see the good in him." Now. This is very, very common. Again, it's a trauma bond. And those those are things that we can do because it could be many things. Number one, we hope that they won't abuse us anymore if we do things just right. Two, it could be the only person who's ever given us attention or love. And maybe that's the only way that we know that it looks. So we think that that's normal, if that makes sense. Um, we could have been emotionally neglected from our parents and this person's giving us attention, right? So we seek that out because it feels good because we need that because we're human and we all need attention and affection. And so we can still engage. I mean, I have had many patients over the years who are in love with their abusers still, even though they know it's wrong, they're not in a relationship with them, but they still have a lot of love for them. And they can be really upset when they get married to someone else or pass away or move away or go to jail. Any of those things can be really distressing. And it really is, um, it's just part of a trauma bond. Our parents really sucked at their jobs when we were growing up. We can struggle with attachment. We could have insecure attachment or you know, we call it like anxious avoidant or disorganized. There can be a lot of different ways that it can reveal itself. And if someone else is offering us more attention, more love, more support, even if it's abusive, right? We want that, we crave that. It's part of the human condition, it's something that we need. And so we can go out of our way trying to to fill that need and that can be, unfortunately, with a relationship or through a relationship with our abuser. And I hope that that just kind of helps you make sense of things. I know it can be really incredibly difficult to, to understand why we would do the things that we would do and we can judge ourselves, but I'm here to tell you it's all part of the trauma response. You are not to blame. It's very, very normal and working on it in therapy can and can make it go away it can can remove that urge to cling to someone so tightly it can help you know assuage that urge for for care and love and we can find a way to give it to ourselves and get it in other ways and I just want you to know that with the right help it can and will get better thank you so much again to APN Lodge for sponsoring this podcast thank you to Jason for sharing all of his expertise it was really cool to hear about what it does to our brain and why things work the way that they work Thank you all for sending in your questions. I hope this was helpful, and I will see you next time. Bye. For self-esteem or why your feelings hurt. You can ask her why
0: breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie.